you can have a seat, but you got ahead of me. <laughs> well, we started a, a new series last week called Amazed, uh, studying the miraculous signs in John's gospel to discover what they teach us about Jesus. Uh, the signs that John wrote about aren't the only miracles that Jesus did, but uh, he chose to include these particular signs, these specific miracles to convince people that Jesus is the Son of God. And so throughout the series, as we study each of these miraculous signs, we're going to ask this question, what does this sign, what does this miracle reveal about who Jesus is? Uh, each of the things that John lays out is designed to show us something uh, to, to reinforce for us that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And so if that's true, uh, we're going to ask, what is it? What does it teach us about who Jesus is? So before we dive into our story today, let's go ahead and pray together. Father, thank you for being our way maker um, and certainly for the miracles that you work and the blessings you pour into our lives. Thank you for keeping your promises. Um, thank you for 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 being who you are. And Father, I pray that uh, as we walk through this series, as we study some of the amazing things uh, that, that you did through your son Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts and our minds uh, to the things that, uh, that you would have us learn about who Jesus is uh, and, and what he wants from us. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Have you ever felt a need, have you ever had a need that is, that is desperate? Something you consider to be like a desperate need. I've never really been in danger of starving to death or dying of thirst, even though we say that, right? We say, oh, I'm starving or, uh, you know, I, I'm so thirsty, I'm parched. But I've never really been in legitimate need where I was actually starving. Um, but, but for kids, every need feels very desperate. I know this because I, I have a three-year-old living in my house once again, and, uh, and for, our, for the three-year-old in our house, everything is a desperate need. Every need is the end of the world, right? Uh, when she feels the slightest bit hungry or thirsty, it is an immediate crisis. If there is not food in front of her, the second she realizes, oh, I could eat, it's a crisis, it's a problem. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we ran out of chocolate milk, and uh, man, you would have thought that the world had come to an end. After she finished her 20-minute long meltdown, she lectured Sarah about improving the way she does the grocery shopping. She, she sat Sarah down and like had, a, had a, a, an eye-to-eye, kind of a face-to-face -face about like, here's what you need to do. You need to buy more chocolate milk so we don't run. It was so funny to watch it happen, right? Um, and if, if one of her screens runs out of battery, I mean, as annoying as it is for like us as adults when like I forgot to charge my phone, for the three-year-old, if a screen runs out of battery, forget it. Like the, the world is ended. The, the, like her, we, she can't watch her videos anymore until we charge her phone for a few minutes. And oh my goodness, you would have thought that we set her hair on fire. And, and, and as you grow up, hopefully you kind of grow out of that a little bit where you start to be able to distinguish the difference between what I want and what I need. Um, but I mean, it, still, even for older kids, it's hard to distinguish. Like, we get better at distinguishing between wants and needs, but we, we're still not great at distinguishing what's a need and what's like a desperate need. 
So case in point, I was about 10 years old and uh, my brother and I made this epic blanket fort down in our basement. We had this cool finished basement, nice big basement. And we loved to take every blanket we could find in the whole house and make this elaborate system of tunnels that we would crawl through and, and like pretend. And it was awesome and we loved doing it. Um, my, my dad had this uh, great library of, of you know, hardcover uh, classics of literature that we used as weights for our blankets to make sure they didn't fall off. And, uh, and we had this great, you know, epic blanket fort and we convinced my parents to let us sleep down there um, in, in our blanket fort down in the basement. And uh, we were up way later than they said we could be up. Um, con- you know, confession time if, you know, my mom is watching right now. We were up way later that night than we were supposed to be and we started getting hungry, you know, as you do when it's late. And, uh, but, but we knew that we weren't supposed to be up and so we didn't want to risk going upstairs to get a snack and waking our parents up and we didn't know what to do and our need was starting to feel kind of desperate until I remembered that my mom keeps a, a pantry, like an overflow pantry down in the storage room, down in the basement right where we were. Now, she only really keeps like canned goods and things down there. There wasn't any you know, snacks or anything good but we figured we would check it out anyway and, uh, and we looked and I found dry brownie mix. And dry brownie, it's chocolate, right? It, it's got to be good. And so my brother went and got like the, the uh, play school spoons, like from my, my sister's like little play kitchen, like the chunky yellow spoons. And we ate the whole box of dry brownie mix because we were in such desperate need. And then we were just desperately sick uh, by the end of the night. Um, but, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, right? And by the time we're adults, we're supposed to be able to distinguish what's a desperate need from uh, what's just a regular need. But we're, we're not always great at that. Uh, you know, when I was 17, I was right on the verge of being an adult. Uh, I got a speeding ticket because I forgot to use the restroom before I got in my car to drive home. And I had to go to the bathroom so bad, I was speeding. Uh, and, and thankfully, the officer was very nice. He pulled me over in a gas station uh, and let me get out of my car and go into the gas station and use the bathroom while he wrote a ticket. Um, he only required that I leave my wallet and my keys with him while I went inside. Uh, and so it was very nice of him to let me use the bathroom. Um, and I'd like to say that I finally have a handle on it, a handle on what needs are just kind of regular needs and what needs are desperate, but uh, my impulse buying on Amazon during the stay-at-home quarantine might suggest otherwise, that, that I, I might not have as big a handle on what needs are desperate uh, and what needs are just regular. But sometimes, sometimes we do legitimately find ourselves in the midst of a desperate need, something that we just can't handle, something we can't control ourselves, something that's truly is desperate. Uh, and that's, that's where the story begins that we're going to look at today. It's in John chapter 4, uh, and that's exactly what's going on. Uh, There's a story about a father uh, who is in desperate need uh, because his son is, is very sick. And uh, last week we talked about this wedding that was in Cana, that was in this village in Galilee. Uh, and after Jesus uh, turned water into wine at this wedding, uh, in John chapter 2, he, he spent some time traveling. He was traveling in, in and around Jerusalem uh, and then in uh, Samaria on his way back up north um, to Galilee. And then here in John chapter 4, by the end of John chapter 4, he's right back in Cana right in the same village uh, where he attended the wedding that we talked about last week. And so he's kind of come full circle uh, and he's back where he started uh, from last week. And so we're going to look at this story together in John chapter 4. It's near the end of the chapter. We're going to start in verse 46 this morning. Once more, Jesus visited Cana in Galilee 
where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So calling this man a royal official probably means he was in the service of a king. Uh, So it's pretty likely that he worked for Herod Antipas, the the regional governor of Galilee that the the Bible often refers to as King Herod. Um, We we hear about him a lot at Christmas time, King Herod. And I would guess that this government official wasn't used to being in desperate need uh, because government officials at the time uh, had it pretty good. I mean, he would would have uh, at least some wealth uh, he, he was a man of some power, um, a man of some influence, some uh, political, political connection. He was linked to politics. And, uh, and, and the issue that he faces here is that his power and his wealth and his status can't help him with the problem that he's having. Uh, his, his son was sick at home. And he was so sick, it was so bad that the the text says that he was at risk of of dying. He was close to death. And I would imagine that this official had probably tried everything in his own power at this point. I I know I would have tried everything that I knew how to do, used whatever money I had to spend in order to try to heal my son. And and apparently nothing had worked. His son was still sick uh, and he heard about Jesus. And so he went and he, he asked Jesus for help. And Jesus doesn't help. I mean, he does, but not right away. Jesus doesn't help right away. First, the first thing that Jesus does is he expresses frustration. He's frustrated with the attitude of of the crowds of people around him in Galilee. He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. This official, this guy that shows up, he's really not interested in who Jesus is. He's not interested in how Jesus fulfilled prophecy or or what Jesus came to do. Uh, Not at first, anyway. At first, he's just interested in what Jesus can do for him. How could Jesus solve his problem? I mean, like just a chapter before this in John chapter three, Jesus has this interaction with Nicodemus and Nicodemus is very interested in who Jesus is and, and like, you know, what, what, what is it that you're here to do and, and what do you mean when you say, you know, like he's really interested in asking Jesus, you know, to explain himself, but not this guy. This guy has a desperate need. This guy has a pressing matter. This guy has a son who's very sick and we can't blame him. I mean, I would do the same. I would come to Jesus and bring my desperate need and I would, I would be very focused on that thing. And he'd heard about Jesus doing signs and wonders, right? And, and he's thinking, maybe Jesus has a sign or a wonder or a miracle or something for me. We talked last week about how in John's gospel, uh, instead of calling it a miracle, John calls it a sign. Because by, when it's a sign, it means that we're, we're meant to learn something a little deeper. We're meant to learn something about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do. But in this verse, when Jesus is, is critical of the attitudes of the people, he, he 
uses the phrase signs and wonders, unless you see signs and wonders. And that's not the same as when John says a sign. You know, when Jesus throws that phrase together, signs and wonders, it's more like a sideshow. It's more like a carnival, unless you guys come and see the show. You know, unless you see me do something spectacular, you're never going to believe. These people want Jesus to prove himself with something more and more outlandish, more and more spectacular. They keep saying, I'll believe if. Maybe if you could do this, I'll believe. Maybe if you could do that, I'll believe. And honestly, if we think about it, I, I, I think that there have been times in our lives when we've maybe done the same thing. You know, hey, God, I'll believe if you do this or if you just help me pass this test, you know, I'll do this for you. We bargain with God. We do that all the time. And I don't know that this is that much different. And that same attitude comes up over and over in John's gospel as we read through John's gospel that people keep pushing Jesus to do more and more spectacular things, more and more amazing things so they'll believe. And Jesus gets frustrated at times with that. He's frustrated that they just want miracles but they don't really want to see what God is doing. They don't really want to see what God is up to or what God wants for their lives. They just want to see an amazing show. And just like the crowds, the official is more interested in what he can get from Jesus than he is in Jesus himself. And, and listen, miracles are fine. There's nothing wrong with miracles. Miracles are, are a regular part of Jesus' ministry, of, of what he did. But Jesus is more than miracles. And Jesus wants people to see that. He's looking for people not just to believe in his ability to do a miracle, but he wants people to believe in him for who he is. He, want, he wants us to have faith. See, faith is the thing that turns a miracle into a sign. Faith is the thing that allows us to see an amazing thing that God has done and understand what it tells us about who God is. Faith is the thing that, 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 that lets us see further, see behind just what's on the surface. This royal official came looking for a miracle, but Jesus used the situation to build his faith. And before we get to to the things that this sign teaches us about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do, I want to take just some time to look at the process that led this royal official to a deeper faith. Because I think it's, it's instructive, um, and I think it's, it's actually kind of typical, a typical process for, for people coming to faith. It started with a desperate need. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times that's what it takes for people to come to Jesus initially, a desperate need, something that is out of my control, something I can't handle on my own. I mean, a lot of, sometimes we ask, how come God let that happen? How could God let me be in this situation? Well, if I won't pay attention to God unless I'm in desperate need, then maybe God allows me to get into a desperate need so I'll start paying attention to God. So I'm in desperate need, right? And a desperate need drives me to Jesus. Um, And that's what it did with this royal official. His son was sick. He was in danger of dying. And no matter how wealthy or powerful or, or connected you are, there are times in your life when you find yourself in desperate need of help like this, this official was. So where do you turn? Where do you turn when, when things in your life spiral out of your control? Now, I imagine that a, a report reached his ears about how Jesus had healed people in Jerusalem and, uh, and when he heard that Jesus was nearby, he was, he was in Cana, uh, nearby back in, in Galilee, he went to find him and, and ask for his help. He, he thought he would give it a shot. Um, Cana was about 20 miles away from Capernaum, which is where the story says that uh, his son was, was at. It was sick in Capernaum. Uh, so he had to leave his dying son behind, he had to leave him at home and travel 
about a full day's journey at the time, you know, to travel 20 miles would have taken almost all day just to reach Jesus. Um, and, and so he leaves his son behind, he travels to reach Jesus, uh, and when he comes face to face with Jesus, he, he begs him to come and heal his son. The, the verb for begged is in a tense that implies it was a continuous action, that he didn't just ask Jesus once, he didn't just show up and say, hey, I've got this problem, can you help? And then like, oh, well, I guess not, and then he walked away. It, it was continuous, it was persistent. Uh, he insisted that Jesus come down with him back home to, to heal his son. And it seems like Jesus says no. In verse 48, when Jesus responds to the guy, he, it's in the plural, so when he responds to this one guy, he's actually talking to everybody. Uh, he's talking about everybody, all the crowds all around him, uh, and he's, he you know, lumps everybody in with this one person that's seeking a miracle. He's like, everybody's always just coming to me for miracles. Because at this point, I, had to, I have to imagine it was like a circus around Jesus that, you know, come and see the traveling, you know, sideshow here of, you know, be amazed and, and, and see the wonders that, that this, this, you know, Jesus of Nazareth can do. And he seems annoyed uh, at, at this, you know, atmosphere that's developing. Um, it seems annoyed. He seems annoyed that, that you know, this official is just like everybody else. They're just looking for another miracle. They just want me to, to perform, but the guy won't give up. Um, even after Jesus seems to say no, he, he keeps at it. And he actually gets, he gets kind of pushy. He, he straight up tells Jesus what to do. He says, no, come down. It's, 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 in, it's an imperative. That's a command that he gives Jesus. You know, how, you know come down and, and heal my son. Um, his, you know, and as a government official, that makes sense. He's used to ordering people around. So maybe it'll work with Jesus, right? I tried begging. Now I'm going to try to order him around. So he has to do what I want. Um, his desperate need led him to search for help. He sought out Jesus and he found him. And once he found Jesus, he was persistent. He, he kept asking. He didn't stop ask, ask, asking Jesus. Even after Jesus seemed to say no, he kept asking. And then Jesus said yes, but only kind of. The man kept asking and demanding that Jesus come back with him to Capernaum to heal his son. That's what he asked Jesus to do. That's what he told Jesus to do. Come back with me so my son can be healed. Now, no, I want you to notice, Jesus never went. Jesus never did what the man asked. He never went back with him to Capernaum. Instead, he told the man to go, and he promised him that his son would live. Now, up to that point, this official hasn't really shown much faith. I mean, he just kind of a desperate hope that Jesus might be able to do something for his son. His faith only really sought Jesus for what he could get from him, never really gave any thought to what he might do for him. Uh, his faith didn't understand the cost of discipleship or the call to sacrifice himself and give all he was to Jesus in order to follow him. Didn't understand all the, you know, all the other things that the Bible seems to say about faith. At this point, th this guy's faith was fairly immature, uh, incomplete, not finished. Uh, kind of in the beginning stages, right? Kind of like the rest of the people in Galilee that were just around, you know, just after Jesus to do a miracle, do something amazing. But his persistence paid off and Jesus agreed to help. His persistence showed Jesus that his need was real. Uh, he didn't give up on it. It was important to him. Uh, and that he really believed, or at least, at least he really hoped that God would be able to do something about it. Um, and so he kept at it and he kept at it. And it reminds me, there's I mean, other places in the Bible that, that talks about, that, that talk about this, talk about persistence. Reminds me the most of 
the parable in Luke that Jesus tells about this widow uh, and this corrupt judge uh, that, that the widow keeps going to get justice. Day after day, she goes back to the judge to get justice and he's annoyed and frustrated and doesn't have time, but because she won't give it up, she won't stop, she's persistent. Finally, that judge is like, fine, and, and he gives her the justice that she deserves. And then Jesus explains this by saying, how much more if persistence pays off with a corrupt judge, how much more will it pay off with God, who's not corrupt at all, who is the perfect judge, how much more does God reward our persistence with blessing? Um, and, and that's what this story kind of shows. God, you know, Jesus rewards the man's persistence. Even if he's not demonstrating a full-fledged faith, he is persistent and it is important to him and Jesus gives him a chance. And so persistence is important. When, when we stop asking God for help, we're kind of saying that we don't believe that he's gonna answer us. I mean, when we give up, when we've been asking for something a long time and we stop asking, we're kind of giving up on God and saying, well, you've had your shot, now I'm just gonna handle it. And persistence is important. Persistence is important to God. It's important to God that, that we continue to bring things to him. Uh, not just like, hey, could you help me with this and then move on with our lives, but that we, that we remain persistent and bring things to him. And so this official won't stop asking Jesus, keeps at it. Uh, he even orders Jesus to c- come down to Capernaum. But I love that, that Jesus, when Jesus responds to him, Jesus gives him an order of his own. Like his, his thing is come down, that's imperative. When Jesus says go, that's also imperative. So Jesus responds, this guy's trying to order Jesus around, so Jesus gives him an order. He says go. Now, not go away. Jesus isn't like sending the guy away. No, he says go home. Go home to your son because he'll be fine. And this is the moment of truth. This is when faith is put to the test. Because if he, if he refused to go home, you know, this government official, if he decided, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make Jesus come home with me. I have it in my power as, you know, the, this whatever, you know, muckety-muck I am in government, and I can make him come, right? He could make Jesus come, but if he does that, if he refused to, to, refuses to listen to Jesus and he won't go home without Jesus, then he would show that he doesn't believe what Jesus said. He'll, he shows that he doesn't trust Jesus. But if he, if he does follow Jesus' order, he would be making a 20-mile journey back home to a dying son with no evidence that the child was healed. So what if he gets home and, he, and, the, and he's still just as sick as he ever was? It's a wasted trip. You know, it, it really comes down to, am I going to trust Jesus? Jesus didn't give him a miracle. Jesus didn't give him a sign or a wonder. He gave him no evidence, no, no outward proof that, that the child would be healed. All he gave to this royal official is a promise. All he gave him was his word. That's it. And he forces him, he forces this father, this desperate father to make a choice between insisting on evidence and proof and miracles or acting in faith without any evidence to encourage him that Jesus will do the thing that he most desperately needs. And I find it really interesting here that for Jesus, healing this boy is not his first priority. Healing this boy is, a, is secondary. It's not unimportant. Certainly it's important to Jesus that this boy live and be healed because he does it, but it doesn't seem to be his first priority. 
his first priority is with the father. His first priority is with this man that's right in front of him and developing a faith in this man. Because, and I think this is so important for us, especially in the, in the environment that we're in right now, because there are some things that are more important to God than life and death. Now, I don't know that there are things more important to God than eternal life, but there are some things more important to God than life and death. And faith that might lead us to an eternity with him is one of those things. You know, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is trying to do something for this royal official. Yes, healing his son, that's the miracle, that's the amazing thing, but maybe even more important, not maybe, more important than that is putting this man on the path to eternal life. There are some things that are more important than life and death. Jesus is teaching this guy, and he's teaching us through this story, that his word is enough. So what do you do? What do you do when your desperate need drives you to Jesus, and then Jesus doesn't give you what you want? What do you do when you're desperate need, when, you, when you're in need and you hear about Jesus and you seek Jesus and you persistently ask and then Jesus answers you and it's not at all what you asked him for? What do you do when you ask Jesus for a miracle and all he gives you is his word? What do you do? Well, fortunately, this story has a happy ending because this royal official took Jesus at his word and departed, the story says. He believed Jesus. Uh, even though there was no evidence, he started on his journey back home. He, he, can you imagine what that would have been like, by the way? A 20-mile journey, probably on foot, maybe, maybe on horseback, we don't know for sure, but like, at any rate, not super fast. Uh, a 20-mile journey back home. You think he ever doubted whether or not Jesus did what he said, do you think he ever wondered what he was going to find when he got home? Do you think he ever was worried that, that, you know, about his son on the way home? And you know what I love? I love that Jesus doesn't make him wait until he gets all the way home. He doesn't make him wait the whole 20-mile journey. Like, the fact that he trusted Jesus and set off for home like Jesus told him to do, that's good enough, that's good for Jesus, that's the faith that he was looking for. And so it says while he was still on his way home, one of his servants showed up and told him that his son was alive, that his prayer had been answered, right? He, he, and, and just, I would want to know this too. He wants to know what time did it happen. Like he's looking for confirmation that it, it wasn't just a coincidence. He wants to know like that for sure that this was Jesus. And so they tell him, you know, what time it happened. And when he realized that for sure, like, yeah, it was Jesus right when he said that, that's when it happened. He realized it was Jesus that did it. Jesus healed my son. It says that he and his whole household believed. That's beautiful. That, you know, in, in, in the New Testament, belief and faith, that's the same word. He and his whole household committed to faith. They had faith. They believed. They started to follow Jesus in that moment. But it started with him trusting Jesus. He had to trust Jesus first, right? 
He, he started with this desperate need for help. He, he took his need to Jesus. And when he found Jesus, he was persistent. And then he committed to trusting Jesus and obeying what Jesus told him to do. His actions really embody Hebrews 11, as we call it the faith chapter. And, and there's one verse in particular in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that, that really, I think, uh, line up with the way this guy came to Jesus and left with faith. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And man, I can, I can see this royal official all throughout this verse in Hebrews eleven six. Some people say seeing is believing, but faith says the opposite. Faith says believing comes before seeing. It certainly did for this royal official. He had to believe Jesus. He had to trust Jesus when he said, go, your son's gonna be okay. He had to trust Jesus in that moment. And, and he had no control in the situation. All he had was faith. Faith pushes us to bring our needs to Jesus, not just once, but over and over and over again, and then to trust him enough to do what he says. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if it's not the thing I thought I should do in this situation, when God directs us to do something, our faith leads us to trust. And John wraps this story up in, in verse 54 by pointing out that this was the second sign that Jesus performed. Again, not the second miracle. Uh, he, he, you know, John talks about when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he, he, he healed people, he performed miracles. But John says, this is the second sign. This is the second thing I wanna draw your attention to that shows us something about Jesus. So, so what does it show? What does this sign show us about Jesus, about who he is and what's important? I think at, at the most basic level, it's, it shows us uh, that Jesus is moved by compassion. He, he's interested in meeting needs. He, he, he's interested in, in, in meeting needs of people who are suffering, people who are, are desperate. E even when people misunderstand what he's trying to accomplish, even when people show up and really they're just trying to take advantage of him, a lot of times he, will, he overlooks that because his compassion drives him to, to meet the need. It, it you know, in Matthew 9, it tells us when Jesus saw the crowds, these same types of crowds that he was critical of uh, in this story, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When, when Jesus, Jesus legitimately sees what's going on in your life, he sees your struggle, he's not indifferent to the hard thing that you're going through. And he loves to meet the needs of people who are suffering. He's not too busy. We read throughout all of scripture, throughout the gospels, he's not too busy to feed the hungry or heal the sick. He's never too busy to play with the children. He's not too busy to talk to lonely people or encourage hurting people. Jesus takes the people that society shoves out to the edges and Jesus puts them in center stage. He is not too busy for them. He is driven by a compassion to meet needs of suffering people, people that society often overlooks. And the second thing I think this story teaches is, is wonderful when it's combined with compassion. It's that Jesus has power. Even in a human body, his power to heal people is not limited by space or time. He heals this boy from 20 miles away without being in the same room. He's nowhere near him when he heals him. Uh, he, he sends the official back and he's able to heal the boy from a distance because his power transcends our limits. 
And I find that one of the interesting themes in John's gospel, if you read through the entire gospel, you start to notice that over and over and over again, Jesus isn't where people expect him to be. When people expect Jesus to be present somewhere, often he's absent and he shows up somewhere else. Sometimes it's the crowds that are looking for him and they can't find him. Uh, Sometimes it's religious officials that are looking for him and and they can't find him where they, they think he should be. There's one story where he appears on the other side of the Sea of Galilee when crowds of people were looking for him on this side of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, when his friend Lazarus, it almost like there's like a climax point, you know, when his friend Lazarus is sick and dying, kind of like this little boy, uh, and everyone expects Jesus to drop everything that he's doing and travel to Bethany to be with his sick friend, Jesus chooses to be absent in that moment. He chooses not to do what everyone expects him to do. And then, of course, at the very end of the story, when the women run to the tomb to try to find Jesus' body, he's, he's absent that day too. He's not there where they expect him to be, right? And that theme repeats itself over and over throughout the, John's gospel that when we, we have a certain expectation of Jesus, that Jesus is confined to this one place or this one time, and Jesus consistently defies our expectation to show us that he's not limited in the ways that we're limited, that, that his power in particular is not limited, his power to heal and his power to save, And the last thing I see about Jesus in this story, there's lots of things, but the last thing I want to kind of focus on is that Jesus has a desire for us to grow deeper in our faith. Yeah, Jesus is is moved to compassion, to meet needs, and he has the power to meet those needs, but he often does it with an ulterior motive. He often exercises his compassion, he uses his power to meet needs so that we will move deeper in our faith and in our commitment and in our trust of him. The official wanted a miracle. He wanted Jesus to do something amazing and and Jesus put himself directly in between what this man was asking for and the boy being healed. Jesus set himself up between those things so that this man had to act in faith. He had to walk home without the thing he wanted from Jesus. That's not an accident. Jesus put himself in this man's way to force a choice. Will you trust me? Jesus isn't interested in performing for us. He doesn't care if you're impressed with him. He's not counting his likes on social media. He doesn't care. The purpose behind his signs and his miracles is to lead us into a deeper faith to lead us into a deeper trust, a deeper obedience. When Jesus does something amazing, his goal is to move us deeper in our faith, deeper in our trust of him. And so I wanna land today with this question. Where do you see yourself in the story? Are you one of the people in the crowd demanding that Jesus do something amazing before you believe? That, that, that I just can't bring myself to believe that, that in all this Christian, Christianity stuff, I can't bring myself to believe that God is who he says he is. He needs to do something amazing for me. I, I would challenge you, if that's you, I would challenge you to consider all the things he's already done. Consider what he's done throughout history. 
Consider what he's done in your own life that maybe you weren't paying attention to or maybe you didn't realize it was him. Consider what he's done in the lives of of your friends and your family who are believers. Um, Read this book and consider what it is that Jesus has already done and then ask, do I really need to see more or is his word enough? Maybe you're like the boy who's sick at home. Maybe you've been waiting on God to answer your prayers for healing. Maybe you're, in, you're the one that's in a desperate situation. And if that's you, I would challenge you to persist. Keep relying on God. Rely on God for your strength. Don't give up your asking. Continue to bring it to him. My guess is that most of us are like the royal official, that we're somewhere in the process, somewhere in the process of developing a deeper faith. You might, be bring, you might be at the beginning of the process, bringing your need to Jesus this morning, and, and, and you're unsure whether he'll be able to help you or not. You, you're hopeful, but you just don't know. Um, I, I would encourage you by the idea that Jesus is moved by, by our suffering. Jesus is moved to compassion, and he has compassion for your situation. Don't be ashamed to bring things to Jesus. And maybe you've brought stuff to Jesus. Maybe you've been asking him for help for a while now and you feel like he's not listening. You feel like he's just not hearing you. Well, Jesus responds to our persistence. He has power and his power is not limited by space and time the way we are. And maybe you're ready. Maybe you're ready to take the step and trust Jesus. Maybe you're ready when, when, when Jesus tells you to you know, go home, your son will live, and you're ready to trust him and follow him and obey what he's been telling you to do. Um, I applaud that because his, God's desire is for your faith to grow deeper. He's not just testing you with random stuff just to see if you'll you know, do crazy things. He is giving you the opportunity to step out in trust and in faith and follow him. His desire is for your faith to grow deeper. He's, Jesus is motivated by compassion to help us with our desperate needs. He's filled with the power that's needed to make a difference in our lives and he's fueled by the desire to grow deep, for us to grow deeper in our faith and in our trust in him. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you, do, that you do miracles. Thank you that you do amazing things. Thank you for your compassion, that, that you're a God who's moved when you see your people who you love so much hurting and suffering. Thank you that you're not indifferent. Thank you that you have the power to, to meet our needs, to, to, to go beyond our wildest imagination uh, in, in the way that you, you, you break in and respond uh, to, our, to our needs and, and to, our, to our situations. And Father, even though we don't always understand it, ultimately, we thank you that your goal for us is to grow us deeper in our faith. Help us to trust you. Help us to take you at your word. Help us to follow well. It's in Jesus' name, amen. We've been taking communion at the end of each of our services uh, since we started meeting again back in June, um, and that's how we'll end again today. Uh, Jesus' compassion and his power and his, his desire for us to grow deeper in our faith, all of those things show up on the cross when Jesus goes to the cross to die for our sins. He, he died for sins he didn't commit, 
in order to reunite us with God. He didn't stay dead, but he defeated sin and death in the ultimate show of power. And he demonstrated once and for all that there's no one more worthy of our trust and our obedience. He, he deserves your trust. And that's why we take communion together every week. We take it to remember uh, and we take it to celebrate his compassion and his power and his victory. And so this will be the last thing we do before we leave today. Uh, communion is on the floor under your chair. And so when you're ready, you can take communion and then we will be dismissed.